Good morning. My name is Gary Anderson. I serve as the pastor here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White. Uh, we are so glad that you are here. It is a joy to be with you together in the house of the Lord this morning. Uh, we are in our second week of our Advent series. Uh, and before we jump into the text, um, I'm just going to pray for us uh, as we turn our hearts now to God's word. God, we thank you that we uh, can gather here corporately together to... Uh, see each other, be seen by each other, to know each other, be known by each other, uh, but perhaps, not perhaps, absolutely more importantly, God, to hopefully see you and to be seen by you. And so that's what we ask that you would do in these moments. We ask that you would fill this house with your spirit, that you would move among us, that you would do what only the living God can do. Uh, God, I pray that as we sit under the teaching of your word, um, that you would fill my mouth with your words, that for all intents and purposes, I would disappear I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that you might be seen, that you might be heard, that you might be uh, tasted and experienced uh, as we now come to you. Uh, Speak to our hearts. Do what only you can do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Our text this morning is Luke. Luke chapter 1. Verses 5 through uh, 25, and my friend David Connor is going to read our text. So as David comes up, you can welcome David. Yep. All right, this is the word of the Lord. The birth of John the Baptist foretold. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in her years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. 
they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When this time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown us his favor and taken away my, disgracing, my disgrace among the people. It's good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, David. Uh, I would like to tell you this morning about the moment that I came to know that Santa was real. Tis the season, okay? So you need to know something about me before I get into this story. Uh, when I was younger, I loved things. Hasn't changed a lot now that I'm, now that I'm a grown man. Still love things. But uh, I was raised in a home where we went to church every week. I learned about God, knew who he was, knew about prayer, knew about all that stuff. And so something I would do, this is, I'm, I'm going back to when I was three and four and five years old. Uh, I believe so fully in the power of prayer as a four-year-old that I would go into my closet in my bedroom and I would shut the door. I had a prayer closet at four. I was <laughs> destined for the ministry, okay? And I would pray to God for the toy that I wanted most in that moment. And then I would open my door expecting to see it there in my room. It's not, I'm not making this up. So I'd go in, pray, come out, and we'd look for where the toy was. Can I tell you how many times it actually appeared? Yeah, the answer is zero, as, as I'm sure you can guess, but kept trying. So uh, about the time when I was four years old, I was in a preschool class at a church uh, in town, and around this time of year, we had a Christmas celebration for my preschool class, and uh, you know who came to the preschool Christmas celebration. It was the big guy himself. Santa was there at our preschool celebration, and the way that it worked is we were in kind of this big uh, like multi-purpose room. He sat on a chair in the middle of the room, and the whole preschool class sat in a big circle around the outside of the room. And one by one, we had the opportunity to go sit on Santa's lap uh, out of earshot of anyone else in the room. It was just you and the big guy in that moment when you got to go sit on his lap. So my turn comes and I go sit on Santa's lap. And remember, I know there are certain things I've been praying for in my prayer closet for a long time and they have not been delivered to me. Uh, but I go sit on Santa's lap and the first question he asks me is, have you been a good boy this year? And I, I laughed and I was like, duh. <laughs> and, uh, and then he goes, well, what would you like for Christmas? And I turned up and whispered in his ear that I would like a G.I. Joe plane for Christmas. Been praying for that bad boy for a long time. If you're worried about how I was conflating Santa and God, that's a different you know, conversation for a different day, but just go with the story. Uh, and listen, nobody else heard that. I'm telling you right now, it was just me and him. There, nobody was within earshot, within earshot of that request to Santa. And I think you probably know where this is going. I did not really believe it was going to happen because I had come out of my prayer closet so many times to know G.I. Joe playing on the bed or anywhere in my room. And it's like, like really a fat guy in a red suit who you know, flies with reindeer all night long and gives kids the things that they ask for, it's kind of hard to believe. Christmas morning, start ripping through the gifts, and lo and behold, what is there? A G.I. Joe plane. My mother still has that plane uh, at, at her house in Knoxville. That was, when I, that was when doubt was erased, certainty was confirmed. As hard as it was for me to believe, 
he gave me a sign. He, it had to be real. I knew it and I still know it today. Now, here's the thing. I'm, I'm 10 times the age that I was at that day. I'm in my early, very early 40s, okay? Very, very early 40s. And I'm still doing the same thing. I'm still going into my proverbial prayer closet, asking God to give me the things that I think I want or need, and coming out and looking around and being like, so where is it, God? And just like four-year-old Gary, a lot of those things, I come out of my prayer closet and they're not there. And after you pray about something for a long time, after you're longing for something for a long time and asking for it and asking for it and asking for it and you don't get it, it starts to become hard to believe that it could actually happen. Now, some of the things I'm asking for today as an early, early 40-year-old man, early 40s man, are like the adult version of G.I. Joe planes, right? It's, um, I want ease and I want comfort and I want nice things and I want uh, life to go smoothly, but not all of them. I just, I want to I give all of us the freedom this morning to recognize you have longings in your heart that are not just sinful and selfish. It is, it is human. It is to, to long for something else is to be human. And I, um, it might be a little bit presumptuous of me to say this, but I know, I suspect, and I know I'm not the only one in this room who has some longings in my heart. I I suspect I'm not the only one this morning who is coming into church and there are some things, they might be fresh or they may be many, many years old, but there are things that we are collectively longing for, hoping for, praying for. There are things that we want to see different in our lives. There are changes we want to see. Now, again, some of those are the adult version of G.I. Joe planes. And if that's kind of ease and comfort or Jordan ones for Christmas, that's, that's not like, that's not, those aren't deep spiritual longings, right? But there are other things that are real, meaningful longings that we are all carrying with us. There are some of us here this morning who are longing, pleading with God that our marriage might be restored. There are some of us this morning who are, who are, who are longing and pleading for our body to be healed. There are some of us who are longing for a child to be healed or for a child to come back or for a relationship to be restored. Some of us are in a a season of life right now where it feels like every prayer just hits the ceiling and bounces back, if we even can find the gumption in us to pray at all. And we're in a season where we're wondering, God, are are you even really there? And if you are, are you really good? And do you actually do the things that you say you're going to do? There are some of us that this text that we just read hits just way too close to home this morning because the longing of of your heart this morning is that God would give you a child and he has not answered that prayer. We are all coming with something or some of us many things that we are longing and hoping and praying that, that might look different in our lives. And when you keep coming out of the prayer closet and it's still not there, it just starts to become harder and harder to believe that something could actually be different. And that is the major theme that we find in Luke 1, 5 through 25. I wish, I so wish that I could come to you this morning and say that the reason we're preaching out of these 21 verses in Luke is because the promise of God is that whatever the deepest longing of your heart is, one day he will give it to you. 
That's not good theology. We'll get to that in a minute. That is not the upshot of this passage. I wish that it was. Here's what I think the heart of this passage is. The reason it's here in the Bible, the reason we're going to sit in it this morning. I think it is teaching us this. God's ways are hard to believe. God works in ways that are hard to believe. And we are just going to see that all over this passage. And we see it in literally the very way that this passage opens up. So we just need a little bit of biblical context as we come to this first chapter in the book of Luke, which is one of the four gospels, which is one of the four stories that scripture gives us of the life of Jesus Christ. So most scholars would say that Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet. It's the last book of the Old Testament. He also happens to be chronologically the last prophet of the Old Testament. And after Malachi, we believe that that God went silent. So for literally centuries, from the time that God appeared, well, from the time that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, but then from the time that God appeared to Abraham, for centuries, 1,500, 2,000 years, God spoke to his people. He, he showed up in visions, he sent angels, he had prophets, he was speaking to his people constantly. But after the prophet Malachi, God goes silent for 400 years. We call it the intertestamental period. It's the period between when we believe the last writings of the Old Testament were written and when the angel shows up to Luke in the holy place of the temple in Luke chapter one. So God has been silent for 400 years. And through those 400 years, do you know what God's people have been doing? They have been asking for him to show up. They have been asking for his promised Messiah to come. They've been asking for the deliverer that he promised over and over, the greater son of David. They've been asking God for that person to show up. And do you know what happens when you ask for something for 400 years and it doesn't happen? It gets hard to believe that it actually will. And so even as we come to the the, the very beginning of the gospel of Luke, the very setting of this passage in chapter one is just a, a huge picture of God works in ways that are hard to believe because for 400 years, his people have been asking him to show up and he was silent, 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 silent. And now boom, here it is. That's hard to believe. So as we move through this passage, there's probably more than, there, there's not probably, there are definitely more than three ways, three things in here that, that God teaches us that are, so, that are hard for us to believe, but we're just going to sit in three of them. And the first one is this, and it's a crummy one. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to good people. Now, I know theologically there are no good people. We like, uh, I saw, I have a quote in my little, my little quotes file. It says, uh, the only time a bad thing happened to a good person was Jesus and he volunteered for it. And so that's a good theology. We're all bad and we're all sinful and all that. But, but can, we just, um, can we just recognize what the teaching of the verses six and seven in this passage are? And that is simply that bad things happen to good people. So as we come back to this text, meet me there in verses six and seven. Uh, So Luke in in verse five gives us some cultural historical context. There's a priest named Zechariah. His wife is Elizabeth. And what does verse six tell us about Zechariah and Elizabeth? They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this does not mean that they were sinless. That is where our theology allows us to understand that they were not sinless. They were sinful just like everybody else. But what is this saying about Zechariah and Elizabeth? They were model citizens. Their spiritual, moral, relational resumes were spotless. 
Zechariah was a priest, which was a high calling in the nation of Israel. And it's, it's not um, insignificant that Elizabeth is also from the family of a priest. For a priest to be married to a woman who is also from a priestly family was considered an extra special blessing. And we are told uh, that they were blameless and righteous. Again, not sinless, but that means that according to the Old Testament moral law, according to the Mosaic law, they were doing really well. They were, they, were doing most, if, they were doing most of the things that God called them to do. They were kind. They were generous. They were humble. They were really good people. And then what happens in verse 7? We get a but. And I hate those in scripture because what does it tell us? Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, this should create, for someone who is familiar with kind of the cultural context of Luke's chapter one, this, this would create some incredible cognitive dissonance because the common understanding on, among God's people at the time of Jesus, at the time that this would have been taking place was that if you were not able to have a child, that was a punishment for sin. You had something in your life that God was, uh, was withholding a child from you. Conversely, to have a bunch of children was considered a sign of God's blessing. So here we've got this couple that we are told they are blameless and righteous, but they can't have a child. And in that culture, to have a child would have been one of the most important things that you could have done as a married couple. So they would have been walking under, not walking, they would have been just living under a a, a level of shame and frustration and guilt and confusion and disappointment that would be hard for a lot of us in this room to identify with. This would have been the low-grade fever of their life. It would have been the little black cloud that hung over everything that they did. And God is telling us through Luke, through this chapter, in no uncertain terms, in the very opening verses of his gospel, that sometimes life is not fair. That sometimes bad things happen to good people. And that's hard for us to believe. Do you know what a governor is? I'm I'm not talking about the political position. A governor, and I'm I'm getting out a little bit over my skis here. I'm, I'm a pastor. I went to seminary, not a mechanical anything. But a governor is a device that you put on a gas engine that regulates the flow of fuel into the combustion chamber. I mean, obviously, (laughs) the manifold gasket intake thing, Niner. It's, it regulates the flow of fuel to the engine, which means that it regulates the speed at which the engine can go. So if you have a governor on your engine, that means you can't go above a certain speed on whatever vehicle that is that you're trying to drive. It keeps you from going too fast. Verses six and seven of Luke chapter one are the governor for this passage. And actually, I would say for the whole rest of the gospel itself. This is the check right up front that God gives us to say, hey, 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 just want to make sure you understand how I work. It is not always the way you want it to be. Life is not fair. Bad things happen to good people. And and this room right now is full of people who are good people. 
Now y'all got sin and y'all, some of you, like we all have that. And so I'm not saying we're all like good before God. We're all sinners before God in desperate need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. But this, is, this room is full of people who have done good things. You are doing good things. You have gone to the right schools. You have gotten into the right industries. You are in the right jobs. You have good careers. You're faithful to your spouse. You're doing your best with your kids. And yet this room is also full of people who have experienced incredible hurt who have experienced incredible darkness in their lives, who have walked through incredible valleys. And some of you are in those valleys even as we speak this morning. And, and I just, I don't want to bring a false sense of hope because God's word does not give us that. that the, the upshot of this passage is that if you just pray hard enough, then God will, will give you the exact thing that you want and turn all of your sadness into joy, all of your frustration into dancing. One day in eternity that will happen. But as we walk through the, the journey that God has put before us on this earth, we are going to experience frustrating and difficult things. And it's hard for us to believe. Listen, we know in our heads, life is not fair, but we believe in our hearts that it should be fair for me. In fact, not only should I get good things when I do, not only like if I do good things, should I get good things? If I do bad things, I should get good things too. That's how life should work for me. And the the, the reason for that is because we have been conditioned from the moment we are born, we, the culture that we live in is a meritocracy, right? You work hard, you get rewarded. You do bad things, you get punished. But that is not how the economy of God's kingdom works. It is the upside down kingdom. And the, the difficult truth, and I'll wrap it up so we can get to some more hopeful things in this sermon. The difficult truth of what it means to follow Jesus Christ is that when you bow your knee to him as Lord and Savior, it does not mean that life is going to be sunshine and roses from that point on. And even for those of us this morning who are like, yeah, but God gave to Zechariah and Elizabeth what they were longing for. I'm like, yeah, he did. But don't forget that 30 years later, John the Baptist's head was taken off of his body. It wasn't all like, oh, it's just sunshine and roses from here on out. This is going to be great. They still walked through hardship. They still walked through suffering. They still had bad things happen to them even after this moment in their lives. So first thing I want us to see, that's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard for us to reconcile. Hard for us to believe is that sometimes and more often than we would like, bad things happen to good people. Here's the second thing that's hard to believe in this passage that I want us to see, and it's this. And this is a good one. God hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. And for some of us, that's really hard to believe. So we got this priest, Zechariah. He is chosen by lot to go into the temple. This would have happened twice a day. There were 18, scholars estimate there were 18,000 priests in Israel at the time of Zechariah. Twice a day, one priest got to go into the holy place. Not the holy of holies where the ark was. This is one section back from the holy of holies. This is called the holy place. Twice a day, one priest chosen by lot got to go in there, offer incense to the Lord, which was representative of the prayers of the people. Most scholars believe he would have given a prayer. He would have offered a prayer on behalf of the nation of Israel while he was in there. And then they would go back out and they would give a blessing on the people of Israel. Uh, if you got chosen for this as a priest, you only got to do it once. Because there were so many, if, if you had done it before, you didn't get to do it again. This, this, in all likelihood, was the pinnacle of his career as a priest, to be able to go into the holy place on this day, offer incense to God, and pray on behalf of the nation of Israel. And as he gets in there, an angel shows up on the right side of the altar. He's terrified, which is pretty much what always happens in all of scripture when the angel of the Lord or God himself shows up in someone's life. And what does the angel say to Zechariah? Again, Zechariah is in there, offering prayer on behalf of the nation of Israel, verse 13. 
But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Number one command in all of scripture. That's not today's sermon, but just hear that a lot. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For what? For your prayer has been heard. Now listen, he's in there offering a prayer on behalf of Israel. And, and, and scholars would say probably that prayer was a, an invocation for the coming Messiah. Like, God, please, please send your Messiah. Please send your deliverer. And the angel shows up and he says, Zechariah, your prayer has heard. And if I'm Zechariah, I'm like, well, that's, that's really great. Thanks, God. And then what does he say after that? And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And so if I'm Zechariah in that moment, I'm like, that's not the prayer that I thought you were going to answer. Because think about this. Let's just do our best to enter into Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. What do we know about them? They are advanced in years. What does it say? One verse, uh, verse 18. What does Zechariah say? I am an old man. Now, most of us in this room, I know we got some younger, younger folks. Most of us in this room understand the biological processes of advancing in age. And at some point, we are all going to age out of the ability to have a child. And, and what this text tells us is that happened for Zechariah and Elizabeth. We don't know exactly when, but probably a long time ago. And so I imagine that the early part of their marriage, they spent a lot of time pleading with God that he might give them a child. But at some point in their relationship, at some point in their journey, my guess is they stopped praying that prayer. Pretty fair assumption. At some point, the biology doesn't work anymore and probably they made peace with the fact that this is how life is going to be and they moved on to praying for different things. And so I don't know if that was 10 years ago. I don't know if that was 20 years ago for them. I don't know if that was 30 years ago for them. But here comes this angel out of the middle of nowhere. He looks at Zechariah and he says to him, what? Your prayer has been heard. And it's the prayer that they were praying 20 years ago. And God is like, I have not forgotten I heard that prayer. All the days that you thought I was not listening, all the times that you thought that prayer just hit the ceiling and bounced right back down, that is not what was happening. I was listening to you and I heard your prayer. Listen to me, church. God hears your prayers. We went to the um, Christmas tree lighting at Lipscomb this week. Anybody there? Party time, all right. Got a few folks that were there. And it was cold. That was Tuesday night. And so I wore uh, my winter coat that I had not worn since last winter. And I don't know how long that's been. Maybe it was, I don't know, February. Praise God, we live in Nashville and it's not that cold. Thank Amen. 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 Uh, listen, I have lived in Cleveland, Chicago, Buffalo, and Boston. That is the four horsemen of the apocalypse <laughs> of winter. And so this is like, uh, the, the, we have come to the holy city, almost, not quite, but it had been a long time since I wore that winter jacket. And as I'm walking out of the house and putting my hands in the pocket, I felt something in my right hand pocket that was unmistakable. I, you don't have to see it to know what it is. You know what folded up bills feel like, don't you? <laughs> I found money in my pocket, and it wasn't a five spot, it wasn't a 10 spot, it was a 20 spot and a five spot. I was $25 richer, just like that. Actually, no, I had always had that money. That's, that's an illustration for another point. <laughs> it feels so good to find money, does it not? 
That money had been sitting there dormant for whatever, six, seven, eight months, and all of a sudden it was mine, and I've already spent it. <laughs> it's the Christmas season. <laughs> the gifts for my kids. Air Jordan 1s. <laughs> had to add a little bit that I already had, so it was a compounding effect. Listen, that is what your prayers do. Your prayers now are making deposits with God that you do not know how they are going to pay off who knows how long down the road. Now, again, got to be really, really nuanced here. That does not mean that everything you ask God for now, he's going to give it to you if you're just patient enough and wait long enough. That is not the message of this passage at all. But the prayers that you are praying now are making deposits that you don't even know what they will pay off someday down the road. So here's, here's the application. Don't stop praying. Or for some of you, start praying. Prayer is, this is not a hyperbole. Okay, this is not hyperbole. Prayer is the most powerful tool we have. And a lot of us treat it like afterthought would be a a generous statement. But you do not know the effect. You do not know the change. You do not know the power that your prayers can have because God hears them and he is the king of kings and Lord of lords and he does whatever he wants. And in some mysterious way, he listens to our prayers and they affect him. Again, that's a sermon for another day. But God hears your prayers and that's hard to believe, but he does, so pray him. And you are just, just mark my words, you are going to see an, a, an emphasis on prayer in this place going forward because it is the most powerful tool that we have. And who knows what we will find in our prayer pockets 20 years from now because of the, the, the prayer deposits we are making today. God hears your prayers. Keep praying them. Here's the last thing that I want us to see in this passage. And it's not like this is just, we've already talked about it the whole way. This is just kind of putting a bow on it. The last thing that that we find that's really hard to believe in this passage is God himself. God is hard to believe because God's ways are hard to believe. God works in ways that are hard to believe. God is hard to believe. And that is exactly, exactly, exactly what we see from Zechariah the priest when we get to verse 18. The, The angel Gabriel says to him, you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a son. And what is Zechariah's response in verse 18? How shall I know this? Let me, let, me, let, me, um, let me bring that into modern English. That's crazy. That's, I, I don't believe you. That's essentially what he is saying. And in his question, how shall I know this? What Zechariah is asking for is he is asking for a sign. He's asking God, he's saying prove it. That's really what he's saying. The angel says, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah's response is not, not give him a big bro hug and start celebrating because like the longing of his heart has now been fulfilled. He says, prove it. Because God works in ways that are hard to believe. And what does the, the angel Gabriel say in response? What, is, what does he say when Zechariah says, I need, I'm going to need a sign? He says, oh, okay, I'll give you a sign. Verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak. Until the, days, until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. So why does Zechariah get a consequence? Because he asks God to prove it. Why does he get a consequence? 
because he asked God for a sign that this miracle is going to take place. Okay, who is Zechariah? He is a priest. He is a professional studier and teacher of God's word, okay? And so he would have known the Old Testament scriptures, hopefully, better than most people in Israel. And there are no fewer than five times in the Old Testament scriptures that God tells us that a woman was barren, and then the next thing that happened is she had a child. Abraham and Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Samuel's mother, Samson's mother, who we don't have a name. In fact, every single time in the Old Testament that a woman is described as being unable to have a child, the next thing that happens is she has a child. And so when an angel shows up after 400 years of God's silence and he says to Zechariah, your wife is not able to have a child, but she is going to have a baby, his, his response should have been, I know this story. I have seen this before. You work in ways that are hard to believe, but you've done it so many times in the past, I'm gonna believe this time as well. That is why the angel Gabriel is like, actually, you're gonna have to be quiet for a while because you didn't believe, you didn't believe what I said. Um, this, is not, this is not a point of my sermon, but this is just good truth. Sometimes the best thing we can do is shut up. And, and God may actually force you to do it sometimes. It is like when you are watching um, one, of the, one of the great, well, there's more than three now. Like, I think there's five or six. I've only seen the first three. One of the great trilogies of my childhood, when it looks like the bad guys have won and they're standing on top of a train that's moving or they're standing on the edge of a cliff and all of a sudden a hand comes up and the music starts going, dun, 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 dun. You know what's about to happen because you've seen this story before. And when an angel shows up to Zechariah and says, your wife who has been unable to have a child is going to have a child, his response should have been, I have seen this story before. And we want to go in so hard on him because it's like, bro, you're in the holy place. The angel of the Lord is there speaking to you and he promises that he's going to give you something that is the, the, the longing and the desire of your heart and you didn't believe him and we're all going to be like, we want to be like, you're such a, like, what's your problem, Zechariah? But here's why he didn't believe it, because he's human. And we all struggle with the same thing. We all struggle with coming to this God who is supposedly sovereign and holy and perfect and for our good and working all things together for our good and has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And we sit in the darkness and we walk through the valley and we're like, God, I'm not sure I believe it. And yet we have so much evidence here and here. The evidence is all around us that he is working for our good that he is doing something we cannot see, that even though it is hard to believe, we can believe it. See, and I, I gotta be really careful how I say this, but, but the, the longings of your heart that you have carried in here this morning, they are, I, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna minimize them at all, but they are all pointing to a deeper longing. And that is a longing for God himself. And that is what the story of Advent, it's not a story, the truth. That is what the, tr the history of Advent, that is what the message of Advent is all about. The message of Advent is hard to believe. That somewhere around 2,000 years ago in what we now call the Middle East, in some backwater town, in, a, in an animal stable behind some bed and breakfast, a baby was born who was actually God. 
and he lived a perfect, sinless life and then died on a cross, having committed no crime, but died on a cross in our place, paying a penalty for our sins that we could have never have paid. And in dying on the cross and raising again to new life, allowing us to be in relationship with the one for whom we were created to be in relationship reestablishing the ability for us to have not the, not the lesser longing of, longings of our hearts. Now, God may give us those and he may not, but, but confirming that we can absolutely have the deepest longing of our heart, which is God himself. That is what Advent is all about, and that is hard to believe, which is why God does not call us to certainty, but he calls us to faith. And anyone who's just like, well, you just got to have more faith. That's great. Faith is hard because it means in hoping in something that cannot be proven. It means in hope, hoping in something that cannot be certain. It is hoping in something that is hard to believe in. And do not miss that Zechariah's punishment was actually the answer to his prayer. He asked for a sign and God gave him a sign. It wasn't the sign he wanted. But what was God doing through that sign? Do you think nine months of silence and solitude did something to increase Zechariah's faith? Just go read his song at the end of chapter one and you will see it's like a different person who is talking. When you ask God, show me that you are real, he may give you something that you don't want. Your valley right now could be God's sign in your life that he is real because he's like, it is when you go through this that I'm going to draw you closer to me. It is when you go through this that you are going to remember that you cannot do this on your own and you need someone who has more power than you have. It is when you go through this that you will come to a sweeter, deeper, and better understanding of who I am. It is through this that I will grow your faith in things that are hard to believe. So even though he may not give us the, the, the longing of our heart today, he has already given us the deepest longing of our heart. And we can sit in these unmet longings until he returns the whole last series we preached and finally and fully gives us the deepest desire and longing of our heart. God works in ways that are hard to believe, but believe it. which is why I'm so excited to take communion this morning. Because communion is another one of God's signs to us. It's a sign. The reason we come to the communion table is one, to remember what Jesus has done for us, but two, it is for our faith to be strengthened. It is by coming and taking the elements of Christ's body and blood that we are spiritually nourished, that our faith is, is I would say, literally fed and that it, it closes the gap for us between the things that are so hard to believe about God and what we're able to believe in this moment. So if you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not bowed your knee to him as Lord and Savior of your life, uh, I would just strongly encourage you, I would actually just say, please don't come uh, and take communion this morning. God's word makes it really clear that communion is for those uh, who are in his family who have said, I cannot save myself. I need you to do it for me. Even though it is hard for me to believe, I am going to step out in faith that you are who you say you are and you can do what you say you are going to do. But if you have done that, if you are a, a son or daughter of the high king, 
no matter where you are on your faith journey this morning, come to the table because it will, it will feed your soul to meet with God here and let him speak truth into you. The way uh, communion works at Midtown is this. We have these kneelers up front. We will have servers behind them. Uh, after I'm done, Kevin and the worship team are gonna come up and we're gonna start um, having worship together. Uh, when you are ready, and this is when you are ready, there is no rush. When you are ready, you can stand up and you can form lines in all three aisles, come down to the kneelers. Uh, when you are ready to take the elements, take your time at the kneelers, just put your hands out in front of you and one of the servers will get you the elements. If you need prayer or would like prayer for anything, if you cross your arms over your chest while you're here at the kneelers, um, it would be one of the great privileges of our servers morning to be able to pray for you this morning. When you're done, just exit out these doors. You can dump your communion cup in the trash. Um, and then I know the great temptation is to cut out and go pick up the kids and leave. Um, but that truncates, I'm, I'm just gonna uh, like not beat around the bush, that truncates the communion experience because part of what we do after we have received something from God is we give him our worship back. And so I would just highly encourage you to come back in through the back doors and come back in and we'll finish out with worshiping God together. Also would love if we could just keep it quiet um, and um, not kind of have conversation time out in the side uh, coffee area while communion is going on in here. Hear these words as we prepare to come to the table. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us um, this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We thank you that it is a sign for us. It is a memorial for us. It is a reminder for us that you are who you say you are, that you do what you say you are going to do, and that you have already met the deepest longing of our hearts, that you have sent your son to do what we could not do for ourselves, and that you have loved us as we are and called us to you. I pray, God, as we come to the communion table this morning, uh, that it would not just be a, a routine, it would not just be something that we do once a month as part of the experience on a Sunday morning, but I pray, God, that you would meet with us, that it would be an encounter with the living God as we come to the communion table. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.